Welcome to Foresight Friday Roundup, Foresight Health's podcast series for healthcare revolutionaries. Outcomes matter, customers count, and value rules. Hello again, everyone. This is Dave Berta, news editor at Foresight Health. It is Friday, July 30th. Who's ready for August? Not me. On today's episode of the Roundup, we're going to talk about population health and the big hit it's taken because of the pandemic. Specifically, we're going to talk about two new studies that say life expectancy here dropped significantly last year, and a new report that says annual drug overdose deaths here hit a record high. 2020, am I right? To tell us what it all means and where we go from here are Dave Johnson, founder and CEO of Foresight Health, and Julie Merchantson, partner at Transformation Capital. Hi, Dave. Hi, Julie. How are you guys doing this morning? Dave? Conventional wisdom suggests that individuals during the pandemic either became punks, chunks, or monks. Gives new meaning to the phrase hunky-dory, which is really how I'm feeling today. Good for you. Julie, how about it? I am deep in the Olympics with my son and sort of crushed by the fact that COVID is really shifting some of these Olympians' dreams, but it's pretty amazing. Cool. Very cool. All right. Thank you. Now, before we talk about pandemics, uh, shorter lifespans and drug overdoses, heavy sigh, let's talk about something a little more upbeat, shall we? What new healthy behaviors have you adopted over the past year to ideally increase your life expectancy? Dave, what have you done to up your prevention and wellness game? On most days, Terry and I take a two to three mile walk in Lincoln Park, which is just down the street from us. That's just good for the soul, but it's also good for our relationship. I personally also have embraced intermittent fasting, which Terry hasn't, and on most weekdays only eat one meal. That makes me feel better overall, stimulates the immune system, and hopefully keeps the chunkiness at bay. (laughs) Great. Thanks, Dave. Julie, how about you? Did you stop or start anything that hopefully will add years to your life? Well, six weeks into COVID after my family had consumed way too many Oreos and sun chips and alcohol. I decided to use code for good. And you've heard me mention this before, but I started using Verda and ended up losing 25 pounds. And looking back, I honestly think it became my way of just controlling something in my life at that point in time. But I have to say, I feel like a new person and, uh, you know, Verda is more for type 2 diabetics than it is for weight loss. But I think there are plenty of solutions out there for people to look at. Wow, that's great. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, you definitely fall into the hunk category. (laughs) Hunky, I like it. After this podcast, I'm going to ask you, what did you do with the Oreo sun chips and alcohol? But we'll talk. (laughs) (laughs) For me, uh, you know, after not seeing my primary care doctor for three years, I decided to start going again for annual physicals. And we'll see if we could nip a few things in the bud and keep these podcasts going longer than expected. So fingers crossed. All right, let's talk about these two new studies on life expectancy. The first ran in the British Medical Journal, and it said life expectancy in the U.S. dropped about two years in 2020 compared with 2018. It was the biggest two-year drop of any of the other 16 high-income countries included in the study. And the second is from the CDC, and it said life expectancy in the U.S. dropped 1.5 years in 2020 alone compared with 2019. When you combine the two and round up, the studies say that if you were born in 2018 or 19, 
you could expect to live to 79. But if you were born in 2020, you can expect to live to 77. Dave, what do the studies say about how the U.S. handled the pandemic generally and how our health system here handled the pandemic specifically? What are the big lessons learned? Well, we're clearly number one. (laughs) Good to be number one (laughs) in something, maybe. Actually, not here. But seriously, there's a disturbing longer-term longevity trend in the U.S., and a shorter-term pandemic longevity trend that intersected with one another. If you look back at when the U.S. health system came together, really, in the 1920s, they designed it to diagnose and treat illness and injury. And that's pretty much what the system has done since then and and gotten very good at it. But by the 1990s, uh, the link between lifestyle behaviors and chronic diseases became very apparent and has gone nothing but upward since then. Exploding obesity and a system geared to treat its symptoms, uh, not its root causes, characterizes where we were just as the pandemic was taking hold. And that translates into some pretty amazing numbers. 90% of healthcare expenditures go to treat chronic and mental health conditions even as obesity and chronic disease continue to explode. The result has been declining life expectancy in four of the last five years. We'll get to the pandemic numbers in a second, but also major gaps in life expectancy between higher and lower income areas. So Streeterville in Chicago, which is the most affluent area of the city, has life expectancy 20 years longer than Englewood, which is the most impoverished area of the city. 20 years. Think about that. The pandemic heightened the discrepancies due to multiple factors. Individuals with chronic conditions were more susceptible to contracting, being hospitalized, and even dying from COVID. There were broad access issues to tests, to treatments, to vaccines. I remember reading a study in the New York Times about L.A. County and how a relatively small hospital in a poor neighborhood, Martin Luther King Jr. Hospital, treated more COVID patients combined than the area's biggest academic medical centers, UCLA, Cedars, and so on. Just gives you a sense of the disparity there. The average statistics that you cited, Dave, are horrible, the two-year decrease in life expectancy, but they hide an even more horrible distribution of COVID's impact on black and brown communities, their individual life expectancies decreased by as much as three years. So the overall number was bad, but the particular impact was felt worse in those communities, also hit rural communities much worse. And by and large, this was a story largely of income, even though there were some racial aspects to it. Wealthier communities did far better than poor communities. So the bleak conclusion as we're coming out of COVID is that driven by poverty, health disparities in America are probably greater today than they've ever been. And more than ever before, how long an individual lives in America depends on where that individual is born in America. Thanks, Dave. Julie, what jumped out at you from the two life expectancy studies? What are your takeaways and how we can get better at this public health emergency stuff? and live a little longer. Well, as Steve Wolf, the study's author, said best, the U.S. has some of the best hospitals and some of the greatest scientists, but other countries do a far better job of getting quality medical care to their population. 
times we have big gaps in getting care to the people who need it most when they need it most. And I think that's exactly what Dave just spoke to. You know, there are two sides of this story, the healthcare side and the social services side. And from my perspective on the healthcare side, this is about patient data. And we've been working on, it's about a lot more than that, by the way, but patient data is so critical to getting care to the right place at the right time. And we've been working on this for a long time. You know, Bush appointed Brailler to ONC in 2004 to work on health information exchange to do this. I was part of an IOM group shortly thereafter about a learning healthcare system that was looking at a broader information sharing approach across healthcare and public health. And it's resulted in some pretty paper, I'll say that, but a lot of great minds thinking about this still. And there are countless of data-driven innovators trying to solve this in pockets of high cost conditions and actually doing a good job but it's slow without more pervasive interoperability. And yet there's still health systems that are selfishly inching along in these efforts and we're still not collecting ethnic, racial, and other data that would help us better manage populations. So that's how I look at the healthcare side of dealing with it. On the social service side, I mean, we've been talking about these issues in the safety net for a long time, but this has just become a mainstream discussion since the pandemic. And these deficiencies in the healthcare system around racial and ethnic disparities have been going on for years, but we're just now starting to look at establishing quality measures in a way that actually look at the areas of largest disparity. So we're just not focused on the right things. But I'd like to highlight one case study from COVID that I think actually brings everything into very sharp focus. And Dave, you might have heard about this, but in March of 2020, so right when, the, when COVID hit, the New York City COVID-19 Rapid Response Coalition was formed to protect the most medically vulnerable and underserved New Yorkers during COVID. And about 75 organizations or so worked on a pro bono basis, making majorly measurable difference in the life of many New Yorkers who are most at risk. And they did so through SMS texting, food delivery, PPE, donation of test kits, all sorts of things. And they save lives. I mean, thousands of lives. So if we were to take a page from the coalition's book, we would all focus on four critical areas. First is emergency food, testing, and other supply distribution. Second is technology outreach, integration, and engagement. Third is expansion of coordinated, accountable social service networks. And fourth is capacity building to deliver clinical and social needs to vulnerable populations in the home. I mean, that to me says it all. There's a lot we can do here. It's a matter of whether we actually organize ourselves to do it. And we need healthcare, public health, employment, education, and social protection systems to do so. And these are the groups that you know either didn't take action or took actions that weren't quite on the mark. And these decisions that they made will be studied for years to understand how we could have done things better. So there's a lot to be learned here. Yeah, maybe some long-term good will come out of it. Thanks, Julie. Dave, anything to add to Julie's comments? Such great observation, Julie. You know, a friend of mine and I were talking last week that you can go to any lower-income neighborhood in this country and see a sparkling dialysis treatment center. It's really one of the nicest properties usually in, in a lower-income neighborhood. And that, to me, says everything about where our priorities are. There. <laughs> The money's in treating disease, it's not in preventing disease. And everything you described, including that heartwarming story in New York, is about being proactive and promoting health and well-being. Allows me to put another plug-in for our language of healthy multipliers instead of social determinants of health, really trying to amplify the positive 
by investing in health and wellness. And I hope we've hit bottom here and that when the historians write about the pandemic and its aftermath, they cite how these terrible health statistics triggered a revolutionary shift in focus toward health equity and better outcomes for all. We really have nowhere to go but up from here. Got it. Thanks, Dave. Now let's talk about this other report from the CDC. It said more than 93,000 people died last year from a drug overdose. That's up nearly 30% from 2019 and a new annual record. No gold medals for that. Julie, is it all because of the pandemic or is there something else going on here? And what do we need to do to uh, reverse that number? Well, a few more stats I found really interesting. I just want to share. Vermont deaths from overdose increased the most by 57.6% from 2019 to 2020. Drug overdoses increased in every state in the U.S. except for New Hampshire and South Dakota. So why do I raise that? It's weird, right, that Vermont and New Hampshire are neighboring states right next to each other, and one had no increase at all, and the other had the highest increase. I mean, there's some weird stuff going on here. These are big issues. The almost 70,000 deaths from opioids nearly eclipsed the total number from the previous year, and it's not necessarily just a pandemic issue, it's a trend. I mean, we're seeing the end of more than 40 years of declining deaths from strokes and heart disease, mostly due to obesity. Suicides claimed 47,000 Americans in 2017. And all these causes together, especially since opioid overdose and abuse, some people actually look at as a form of suicide. I think that's quite debatable, but they show that we're, as Americans, slowly killing ourselves. So that's a problem. And what do we do? You know, many are calling on governments and agencies to widen access to treatment for people who are suffering from substance abuse disorders with serious long-term funding, because that's the only thing that's going to do it. And the Biden-Harris administration is really prioritizing this with a full continuum of all sorts of interventions, everything from harm reduction, like syringe exchange programs that have been super controversial at the headline level, to increase treatment capacity. So there's a lot of effort going into this. But what else can we do? You know, blaming doctors and our capitalistic system is certainly not solving anything, that's for sure. Shifting more costs to the consumer certainly seems to be making it worse because it's stressful. And, you know, many would say that the root cause is poverty and poverty breeds despair and despair finds solace in behaviors that might be killing us. So it seems to me like we really need to really attack poverty and understand what we can be doing to create a feeling of safety among people. Thanks, Julie. Dave, what does the uh, CDC report on drug overdoses say about the healthcare industrial complex? Uh, Further, do you think that the proposed $26 billion settlement with the three drug distributors and what drug company will make a difference? Well, first on the poverty question, I agree with Julie so much of what translates into bad health outcomes relates directly to poverty. It came out just this week that with all the stimulus payments and particularly the child care credits, that poverty percentages, the number of, of children and families in poverty, is the lowest it's ever been in the United States this week. Might be interesting to see if there are spillover beneficial effects from that. I'm sure there were. Uh, but to your question about the settlement and its impact, just want to start with a story that at the end of 2019, right before the 
pandemic, we happened to be first in London and then in New York back when we could travel. And we visited the Royal Academy in London and the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Both had gigantic new wings or relatively new wings funded by the Sackler family, who are the ones that founded and, and largely owned Purdue Pharma, the manufacturer of OxyContin, and probably the worst of the opioid manufacturers, although that, that list is not terribly distinguished and long. And I got to say, walking through those exhibit halls felt like we were in the presence of blood money, that the suffering of millions of people paid for the swing and made these people fabulously wealthy. In my last book, The, the Customer Revolution in Healthcare, I, I make the case that so much of what drives healthcare in America is the equivalent of the military industrial complex, the healthcare industrial complex. And those occur when massive industry gets together with a massive governmental bureaucracy and members of government to work for their collective benefit at the expense of, of broader society. And to drive that point home, I did a very deep case study on the opioid crisis in the United States. And from beginning to now, it's been an example of the healthcare industrial complex essentially unleashing a plague on the people of the United States of America for its own benefit. So very questionable evidence of efficacy at the beginning. Purdue and the other opioid companies ran hard with that. The FDA acquiesced. Medical schools began training doctors in pain prevention. You might recall that the Joint Commission made pain the fifth vital sign, those smiley faces. That became as important as, as the other vital signs. Manufacturing and distribution took off. They gutted the enforcement capabilities of the DEA. Probably the height of cynicism was that President Trump appointed Tom Marino, a congressman from Pennsylvania, to be his drug czar fairly early on in his administration. And Marino had been the member of Congress that had pushed through the legislation over a four or five year period of time to take away the Drug Enforcement Agency's ability to levy fines. I mean, it's just incredible when you get into it. We did that to ourselves. So the settlement, but, you know, of course it makes a difference. $26 billion is, is a lot of money. Funding for drug treatment, funding for education, hopefully funding for public service programs to discourage the need for drug use and so on. I do say that the distribution of the $26 billion by population rather than by areas of impact seems wrong to me. Rural states like West Virginia that just got devastated by the opioid crisis probably should get a greater percentage of the payout. But throughout all of this, the companies continue to deny wrongdoing. There hasn't really been criminal prosecutions. So I don't think we should stop here. And this may make some people angry. If it does, write me a nasty email. But McKinsey, the very respected consulting company, paid a $600 million fine in February of this year, essentially for its role in advising Purdue Pharma how to maximize sale of opioids. I mean, that's atrocious. And of course, they deny all wrongdoing in making the settlement. I think back to Enron and Arthur Anderson, and Arthur Anderson was clearly complicit in Enron cooking its books and doing everything it did. But people at Enron went to jail. Arthur Anderson went out of business. 
And I find myself asking, is, is what McKinsey did and what Purdue Pharma done somehow not worse than what Arthur Anderson and Enron did? And I come back thinking, if anything, what McKinsey and Purdue Pharma have done is worse, and yet they're not paying anywhere near the same penalty. So the way I look at it, big pharma has a lot of similarities with big tobacco, and only the government is big enough and strong enough to rein in the bad behaviors, but it has to be focused on doing exactly that over a very long period of time. And they're up against a very powerful healthcare industrial complex in terms of trying to make this happen. Got it. Thanks, Dave. Julie, anything to add to Dave's comments? Well, I just think about the settlement money and I question whether money like that is going to be used to actually systemically deal with some of these issues that we're talking about, certainly as it relates to poverty. Like, can we do more to stimulate economic development in struggling areas or should we be facing the music that industries like coal may be dead and miners may need to be re-educated or relocated? Probably not making friends with some people for that comment. Can we rapidly retool? low-skill workers to address you know, an increasingly skilled labor shortage? What role can that money play in more effective mental health coverage? Or really basic things like supporting families and sustaining marriages, which appear to play a role in protecting against both suicide and drug deaths. And our friend Alex Drain has talked for years about the fact that if you've just gotten divorced and one of your kids died and you have diabetes, the last thing you're going to worry about really is what your hemoglobin A1C is. Like you've got bigger fish to fry. So there's so many things we can do, but it requires a mind shift and we need to get out of our budget silos and our Darwinian design and figure it out. Yeah, interesting. Thanks, Julie. It is definitely an uphill climb, that's for sure. And I hope I get to see you guys at the top. Now, as always on the Roundup, let's talk about next week. Julie, what's making healthcare headlines next week? Well, I have to say, I think this vaccine mandate thing is still going to be in the headlines next week. It is just becoming such a major issue. And the fact that we talked about this for health systems last week, I mean, I can't even believe the debate that's going on right now. But I'd like to just throw some menu on the table, which is mental health. I saw that two of the Cigna Ventures investors left this week to start another mental health company. And that makes like the umpteenth mental health company I've seen in the last six to nine months getting started. So I've got to think that we're going to start seeing some roll up in that space and, you know, start to really look at things beyond just providing access from some of these companies. Got it. Thanks, Julie. Dave, what's on the lips of healthcare wonks next week? Well, I agree with Julie on the vaccine mandate, but we talked about that at length last week. So I'm going to take a page out of her book, particularly, Julie, since you mentioned the Olympics right at the beginning. And the shock somewhat of Simone Biles, perhaps the greatest Olympian gymnast of all time, pulling out of the Olympics really for mental health reasons. And I think it took a lot of courage on her part. But even more, it's a sign, a very positive sign that American society maybe getting to a place of greater parity between mental and physical illnesses. And if that's the case, that will be a very good contribution to Simone Biles' legacy going forward. Got it. Thanks, Dave. And thank you, Julie. That is all the time we have for today. If you'd like to learn more about the topics we discussed, please visit our website at foresighthealth.com. You also can find a recording of this podcast and all our podcasts on the Healthcare Now Radio Network, iTunes, Spotify, and other streaming services. 
Subscribe now and don't miss another segment of the best 20 minutes in healthcare. Thanks for listening. I'm Dave Berta for Foresight Health.